It's our privilege to open the Bible together this morning, so I want us to return to our study of the book of Romans. If you want to take your Bibles, you can open them with me to Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. We are continuing our study of this great doctrine that we know as justification by faith alone. Justification by faith alone. And as we have seen over the past several weeks in our study, unbelief always has its objections. Unbelief always has its ways in which it does not want to believe. The sinful heart of man does not want to hear of salvation that has nothing to do with his own efforts. Our hearts do not resonate with that information. Our hearts do not like that kind of information. In fact, any time that kind of statement is made, that salvation comes to a person by faith alone, and thereby implying that they have nothing that they can bring to the equation in order to mitigate any kind of guilt of their own, the arguments to that reality and that idea begin to be made. The most prevalent of all the arguments is the idea that certain efforts on behalf of mankind, as long as those efforts are defined as good in some kind of way, either moralistically or religiously, that those efforts should be included and, in fact, should be accepted by God. They should be a viable means by which God can therefore justify that person during the inevitable day that is coming, which is judgment. We know, at least at the very least, if we are to accommodate even the liberal mind in the world today, that some kind of judgment is coming. The Bible even declares it in Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 27 where it says it has been appointed for man to die once, and then comes judgment. So whatever someone may believe about the future, whatever someone may believe about the afterlife, one thing is sure, and we see it happening all around us every day in our world. People die. So you can say what you want about the Word of God. You can say, well, I only believe some of it or I don't believe any of it or it was written by man. One thing is sure about the Word of God, at least in Hebrews 9.27, it got part of it right if whatever we believe about that happens later. People die. People die. Death is inevitable. And according to Hebrews 9.27, so too is judgment. So the Apostle Paul in Romans has been dismantling the idea that justification before God has anything to do with man's efforts, that it has anything to do. When I say justification, I mean salvation. I mean being standing before God and not being counted guilty. Moral and or religious ritual have no bearing upon 
salvation as far as justification is concerned, as far as a declaration of God that you are no longer guilty of your sin. And of course, justification is that very definition. It is that eternal declaration, that forensic, legal definition, if you will, that legal declaration by the judge of the universe that you are innocent of the guilt and penalty of your sin. Doesn't matter if it's past sin, doesn't matter if it's present sin, doesn't matter if it's future sin, all of it you have been absolved of if you are justified. And so this is where we have been over the past several weeks. And if you haven't been here, you haven't heard that, maybe you're visiting with us today, if you haven't gotten those, go to our website or something and download the past few messages and listen to them, at least up to the point where we are this morning, because it's going to help It's going to help fill in the gaps that you might have in your heart and mind as you listen even this morning. The driving point, however, thus far, is that salvation, the declaration by God, the justifying reality before God, is by faith alone. That's Paul's driving emphasis. And he uses the life of Abraham as the perfect illustration, if you will, for both Jew and Gentile alike. And I pray we will understand why if we don't understand that already. So this morning, I'd like us to consider this. What what saving faith looks like in practice? What saving faith looks like in practice? And I want us to do that by looking once again at what Paul looks at, Abraham's faith. And maybe a better way to say it is to ask it in the form of a question rather than make a statement. Let's ask it in the form of a question so that we understand what we're thinking about. Do we know what faith is? Maybe that's a better way to say it. Do we know what saving faith actually is? In other words, do we know the essential qualities of the kind of faith that justifies? Do we know the essential qualities of the kind of faith that justifies? I ask that question because in our study of Romans, the Holy Spirit has told us several times that Abraham is justified by faith. Abraham is justified by faith. So, What exactly does that mean in its outworking? The scriptures tell us Abraham was justified by faith. What does that mean in the outflow of Abraham's life? What did that faith show in practice in Abraham? Well, I believe we get a clear answer to that question in verses 18, or 19 really, through 20, no, actually 18 through 22. 18 through 22 of chapter 4. And it's extremely important that we understand what this means. Why? Because verses 23 through 25 clearly say, Now, not for his sake only was it written that it was reckoned to him, but for our sake also to whom it will be reckoned. And, of course, Paul's writing to these people and to everyone who future reads this as those who believe 
in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. You see, this was written for us. So the driving point of Paul isn't simply to show us Abraham's faith. The driving point for Paul is our faith. Our faith. And our living by that faith in the same way that Abraham lived by that faith. And so Paul gives us, I believe, five essential qualities of a faith that justifies in this text. So let me just begin by reading verses 18 through 22 for us. Notice what Paul says, Romans chapter 4, beginning in verse 18. In hope against hope he believed. In order that he, and he's speaking of Abraham, in order that he might become a father of many nations, according to that which had been spoken, so shall your descendants be. And without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb, yet... With respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully assured that what he had promised, he was able also to perform. Therefore, also, it was reckoned to him as righteousness. So what does saving faith look like in practice? In Romans 4, verses 18 to 22, we have five essential qualities of saving or justifying faith. Five essential qualities of saving or justifying faith. Number one is this. Faith that justifies or true saving faith, implicitly believes the promise of God. True, right faith that justifies, faith that saves, implicitly believes the promise of God. Notice what verse 18 says. In hope against hope, He believed in order that he might become the father of many nations according to that which had been spoken. So shall your descendants be. Now in those words we hear the first quality of all true saving faith. And that first quality is what I said. It implicitly believes the promise of God. Of course, here Paul is specifically speaking about the promise made to Abraham. But his belief is an example, as verse 23 and following says, to us. Right? We believe the promise of God. Just like Abraham is believing the promise of God. The promise was made to Abraham that he would be the father of many nations. So we are dealing here with history. We are dealing with the implicit belief of what God said. 
In other words, this is not theory that Abraham is believing. This is not Abraham having some kind of wishful thinking. This is actual history, and it's history that we know about. It is recorded for us. It has been preserved by God through all the ages for us in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Scriptures, so that we could read about it, so that you and I here some 3,000 years later can learn of the character of God. And Abraham is the beginning of a long history of the nation of Israel in a natural way. Right? And he is the beginning of a long history of many people in a spiritual way. And the reality of that became an actuality through the instrumentality of faith. Abraham believed God. So what did this faith enable him to do? What did it enable Abraham to do? Well, as I already have somewhat alluded to, first and foremost, it enabled him to trust God's promise to him. Justifying faith trusts the promise that God makes. Now, that may seem like a small or even redundant thing. Faith trusts, right? Faith is trust, right? Saving faith, justifying faith, trusts what God says. And that might seem redundant to us until we consider the promise itself and what Paul is referring to here. He says Abraham believed. He believed, right, in hope against hope. He believed so that he might become the father of many nations. And that idea is summed up in the quote that Paul gives here at the end of verse 18, which is a quote from Genesis chapter 15 and verse 5, so shall your descendants be. So there is the promise. There is the promise. So shall your descendants be. Paul interpreting that and exegeting the text for us from the Old Testament tells us this is what it means by what it says, that he would be the father of many nations. Now remember, I said in previous messages that this promise is twofold. Remember I said that? On one side you have the physical promise to Abraham. God promises to Abraham that he would have an enormous physical heritage, an enormous physical heritage. In fact, it would be so large that the promise that God has made about that, that God himself illustrates to Abraham just how large his descendants would be in magnitude, and he compares it to what? The sand of the seashore and the stars of the sky. In fact, he tells Abraham, Go out and look at the stars of the sky and count them if you are able. That's how far your descendants are going to go, Abram. So now try for a moment to realize the mind-blowing hugeness of that promise to Abraham. Just concerning the physical aspect. We're not even talking about the spiritual side yet, but just think about the physical reality of that. Abraham, your descendants are going to be like the sand of the seashore. If you read in Nehemiah, it even says that they were like the sand of the sea. Try for a moment to think about that. Here is a man who is nearly 100 years old. 
now. I know there are some of us who are growing in our age here, but nobody's at that age yet here. Close. His wife is over 90. He doesn't have any children. So he hasn't had any physical progeny yet. And yet God makes this incredible promise to him about his natural descendants. God says to him, Abraham, go look at the stars. If you can even count them, because that is the magnitude that I'm talking about. That is the essence of my promise to you, Abraham. Seems rather far-fetched and crazy, doesn't it? I mean, think about it. Somebody comes to you and says some silliness like that. You're going to go, you're really whacked out. I mean, you're clueless. Do you even realize who I am? Do you realize what you're saying? And yet, Abraham hears this from God, and yet faith enables Abraham to believe it. And even more than that, even more than that, the promise had another incredible aspect to it. It wasn't just the physical side. That's crazy enough. But there's another side to it that's even more incredible. When God speaks to Abraham, he's not only speaking to him about his natural descendants, but at the same time, he's promising another seed. Another seed. Remember that? We, we know that. We know the mystery of that, the answer to that, because Galatians 3.16 says, Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. So not only is God speaking to Abraham about his natural descendants, but he's speaking to him about what's going to come through his seed. He does not say to seeds, referring to many, but to one and to your seed, which is, as Paul says in Galatians 3.16, Jesus Christ. And so that even more incredible aspect has to be included in the promise that God makes to Abraham when he says, as Paul quotes here in verse 18, so shall your descendants be. So the promise to Abraham was not only for natural descendants. That's, that's beyond any natural comprehension at all. It would be like two people who were both in their glory years going into the maternity ward at the hospital and saying, hey, clear a bed for us. We're about to have children. The only phone that would be picked up is the one to the crazy ward. Come get these people. But also here is the spiritual descendants of Abraham in the promise that would come through the one seed, Jesus Christ. In other words, God told Abraham that out of his loins, out of his very personhood would come not just natural descendants that would be far beyond anything he could ever think of, but also the spiritual savior of all who would ever believe. And this is Jesus Christ. And this is exactly what Jesus Christ himself said in this way in John chapter 8, verse 56. When he speaks to the Pharisees, he says to them, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. 
You see, in the promise of God, so shall your descendants be. Abraham rejoiced at what God was saying. You cannot say Abraham did not get it. Abraham did get it in the understanding that God had given him at the time, and he understood because Jesus Christ himself says, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. One thing that we cannot do as evangelicals is combine the promise to Abraham simply to the Jews. The promise made to Abraham was a twofold promise. And the incredible reality is that God revealed to Abraham the whole plan of salvation through the seed who did come, Jesus Christ. Abraham saw him and rejoiced. He saw the day. Now, someone might argue Abraham didn't see all that in that promise. Well, it's true that Abraham couldn't see all of it as clearly as we do. Abraham wasn't walking around with a copy of Galatians under his arm. We've been given more revelation in the Scriptures than Abraham had. God revealed to Abraham all that God needed to reveal to Abraham for Abraham to believe God, and yet we have more revelation than Abraham ever had, and that simply makes the expression of justifying faith even more amazing. That doesn't discredit the reality of justification by faith. That just elevates it to a higher level. Justifying faith today has so much more revelation to hear from. Yet Abraham implicitly believes the promise of God that he would be a father of many nations. Not just the Jews, but a father of many nations. The faith father of all those who were not Jews as well, including even Jews who believe as Abraham believed. And so you need to mark this down when it comes to salvation, when it comes to justification even here today and and in our life. The first essential quality of saving faith is that it implicitly believes the promise of God. It implicitly believes that. God promises that you can have salvation through His Son, Jesus Christ. The issue isn't, is the promise true? The issue is, do you believe? Saving faith implicitly believes the promise. The second essential quality of justifying faith is this. Saving faith believes, get this, without asking for proof. Let me say it again. Justifying faith, saving faith believes without asking for proof. You say, how do you know this? Well, I want us to take us back up to verse 17 for a minute. Because it says, a father of many nations I made you. And Abraham believes this inside of him whom he believed. Who's that? God, who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. Now, I need to, to say this because this is important for us to understand when it comes to justifying faith. When Abraham believed God's promise to him, he believed it on the basis, get this, of God's word alone. That's what he based it on. That's what he believed. 
He didn't ask for proof. In other words, there was nothing for Abraham, even in his mind, to use as proof that the promise would happen. Except God's word. God said, Abraham, here's what I'm going to do. Abraham believed. Abraham simply trusted what God said without proof. God makes the promise to Abraham, and on that alone, Abraham believes it. Now, I want to submit to us today that that is always how true justifying faith responds to what God says. That is always how justifying faith responds to what God says. Saving faith does not look for, saving faith does not ask for proof so that it can be sure that it's doing the right thing. In fact, it would be right for us to say that it doesn't even need proof. You say, why? Because saving faith is always content with God's Word alone. Why? Because He's God. Because He's God. Right? Abraham, when God said, A father of many nations, I made you, verse 17, in sight of him. That is, in sight of God whom he believed. Right? We see that. In sight of him whom he believed. God, who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. God said it. Justifying faith receives it. That's it. Why? Because it's God who said it. Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. So essential to saving faith, essential to justifying faith, is the implicit belief in the promise of God and implicit belief in the word of God without asking for proof. It's not saying, God, I'll believe you if... I believe this is true from your word, if, when. It doesn't do that. Notice there's a third essential quality that we have to highlight. The third essential quality, this is so, so wonderful. Saving faith believes God, get this, in spite of apparent obstacles, in spite of apparent obstacles. We might even say it this way. Saving faith believes God or justifying faith believes God in spite of any natural contradictions to the contrary. Notice what verse 18 says to us. I hope you get as much out of this as I got this week. He says, in hope against hope. He believed. In hope, against hope, he believed. It's a very interesting statement. We need to we need to spend a little time on it here because it's so important. Paul is telling us that Abraham's faith believed an incredible, crazy, outlandish, 
promise of God. Simply because of the Word of God, but also notice contrary to what naturally appeared to be in the way of that belief. Verse 18 says, In hope against hope, he believed. In hope against hope, he believed. And what that phrase means is that there was no natural hope for the promise of God to be accomplished. In other words, in a natural sense, according to human means, everything was against the promise. Everything. Think about it with me again. Abraham's own natural body is as good as dead. Sarah's womb is as good as dead. Her natural ability to bear children was long past. And yet God makes this promise to Abraham concerning his descendants, both natural and spiritual, And yet, on a natural level, from a human perspective, there is no conceivable way this could take place. There's no natural hope at all. No way in which, from a natural level, Abraham would have hope and Sarah would have hope that there might be a natural birth of a child through her womb. Let alone... Through them would come the Savior of the world. So the promise was, at least from a natural point of view, from a human perspective, it was a hopeless situation. Totally, completely, absolutely hopeless. Everything's against it. Everything naturally is against it in this life. And so the text says, against hope, he believed. Against hope, he believed. But what did he believe? He believed, get this, he believed in the hope that God laid before him in the promise. He didn't hope in his natural abilities to get it done, even though he tried to do that, and God said that's not how the promise is happening through Ishmael. He hoped in the hope that God gave him in the promise that God gave. It says, in hope against hope, he believed. Now, if you do a literal, the literal idea, the literal translation of this is Abraham, who against hope believed in hope. That's the idea. Abraham, who against hope, against his natural hope, believed in hope in the hope that God gave him in the promise. In other words, what Paul is saying to us is that Abraham, against any idea to be able to naturally accomplish these things, he believed in the hope that God was laying out for him. Why? Because of who said it to him. Abraham could believe in the hope that God was giving him, in the promise that God had given him because of who said it to him. Now listen, this is very... This is where we ought to be because this is the same hope. Listen, that is the same hope that we have in the promise of God 
in Jesus Christ. That is the hope of our salvation. Acts 26.6, Paul is before the council trying to say exactly why am I here? Why am I being challenged by this? Why are you dragging me in here? He says, and now I'm standing trial for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. You have me on trial because of believing in the hope through the promise that was made to our fathers. That's why I'm here. We are told here that Abraham believed in this hope in spite of everything that pointed against it in his natural life. In spite of all of the apparent natural reasons to doubt it, in spite of all the natural reasons that come and say, don't have any hope, in spite of every natural argument against the promise happening. In fact, in in spite of all natural common sense, In spite of all others who might have ridiculed Abraham and said, you're out of your mind, Abraham, Abraham believed in the hope that God gave in the promise. Against all natural hope, he believed in hope. That's true of saving justifying faith every time. That's true of saving justifying faith every single time. Because you have no hope to save yourself. According to your natural abilities, your natural righteousness, your natural religiosity, your natural morality, whatever you think you can do in order to be justified before God, you have no natural hope. And God makes a promise. And he says, if you will believe upon my son, you will be saved. And so faith that justifies believes in that hope against the natural hope. If we will confess our sins and repent, believing that we will be delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred into the domain of His dear Son, we will be saved, Colossians tells us. That's the hope of the promise. If you would believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you will be saved from the wrath to come. That's the hope of the promise. All of our natural thinking fights against that. All of our human logic argues against that. It says there's got to be another way. There's got to be something I can do. There's got to be some other thing that, that, that I'm missing here. We look, for, we look at the reality of the promise and the, react, and the miraculous reality of what we are promised by God, how crazy it is that God would save through someone dying on a cross, the sinner who would confess his sin. And we look at all that and we look at our fallen nature and we say that cannot be so. But saving faith comes along and against all that natural, foolish, hope it believes in the hope that God gives in the promise so in spite of all apparent obstacles saving faith believes in what God says believe 
make this statement in Hebrews chapter 11. It says this, Faith is the substance of things hoped for. It is the evidence of things not seen. Did you hear that? Faith is the substance of things hoped for. So right there, the writer of Hebrews is confirming that faith is the very substantive matter of the very thing we hope for. It is, faith is the evidence for it. It's the substance for it. It's the evidence for it. In other words, it is the evidential value and element of justifying faith. It isn't something vague. It isn't something uncertain. No way. Saving, justifying faith is that which substantiates the promise. You want the promise of God to be substantiated, that your salvation is secure? Believe. That brings us then to the fourth essential quality of justifying faith. Justifying faith is strong and unwavering faith. Justifying faith is strong and unwavering faith. Notice what he says in verses 19 and 20, and without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb, yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God. So what was it then about Abraham's faith that enabled him to embrace this incredible, outlandish, from a natural perspective, promise of God simply on the Word of God alone? What was it that enabled him to believe that? In other words, how does justifying faith do this? The answer is right there in that verse. Justifying faith makes us strong and unwavering on the promise. That's what it does. Verse 19 says, he did not become weak in faith. It says it on the negative side. And the other side is, he did not waver in unbelief. That's the positive side of faith. He didn't become weak in faith and he didn't waver in to unbelief. How does faith produce that kind of belief? By producing strength in us. Let me say it this way. Justifying faith, which is saving faith, constantly strengthens us with greater steadfastness in faith. This is how God operates. Justifying faith constantly strengthens us with greater steadfastness in faith. We believe the promise of God, and God saves us. And once we're saved, we walk by faith. We walk believing the promises of God. 
We walk implicitly believing what God has said. We, we don't ask for proof. God, gee, if you'll just show me the love that I need to have, the love that I think I need to have in my heart, then I'll do what you say. No, Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. So if I believe God and I'm walking by faith, yes, trouble comes. Yes, difficulty comes. Yes, it, it, it hounds us, in fact, because of the sinfulness of life. And yet it's saying, don't believe God, don't believe God, don't believe God. And your faith is saying, no, I'm going to believe. In spite of all the natural obstacles, I'm going to believe. I'm going to do what God has asked me to do. Abraham was made strong. How? By being delivered from being weak. Without becoming weak in faith. Weak in or weak through what? What was he going to be weak through? He didn't become weak in trusting even though he considered, contemplated, it says here, everything that was naturally against it. See, he contemplated his own body. It was as good as dead. He contemplated his wife, the deadness of her womb. He he didn't just go, oh, gee, God said it. I'm not even going to think about life. No, he contemplated all of the natural realities that were against it. Sometimes we get the idea that once we believe, there's never any doubts anymore. It's true. Once you're truly saved, you're really saved. Don't doubt that. But sometimes we think we shouldn't ever have any doubt of anything or the doubt should just somehow miraculously vanish away from our sinful minds. And yet we find out by way of our own experience that there's times when we doubt, don't there? Doubts come. Doubts all kinds of things. Right? God said, I will supply your needs. God said, aren't the lilies beautiful? Yet, or, And Solomon and all of his riches weren't arrayed like the lilies of the field. Don't you know God knows your very needs and we worry about that. And yet the scriptures say, by God's word, don't worry for anything. And yet we worry. You know why we worry? Because we believe doubt. God says, don't worry. That's his promise. Go careful. Take care of it. And yet we go, what am I going to do about tomorrow? Oh, I don't know what I'm going to do about tomorrow. Abraham didn't disregard the things in front of him. He didn't disregard the things that might be difficult by way of his life and what God was saying. It isn't that doubts come Or don't come, that's not the issue. The issue is, what do I do when those doubts do come? What do I believe? Abraham didn't shy away from the inevitable things that would have caused him to doubt. He contemplated his own body. That could have caused him to say, oh, God, your your promise is no good. It was as good as dead. He was an old guy. His wife's womb was, was gone. He looked at those things right in the face. He looked at life straight in the face. Lord, I don't see how this is going to happen with the way I am. How in the world, Lord, could you love me with the depth and magnitude of sin that I have? How in the world could you ever save somebody like that? You don't... 
oh, yeah, the other people talk about their sin, but they don't know the depth of my sin. My bucket is the biggest bucket ever. How could you ever save me? That promise surely, surely can't be true. Abraham looked at the promise. He looked at what faced him that could cause him to doubt. And yet, with respect to the promise, verse 20, he said, he did not waver in unbelief. He was strengthened in his faith by his faith. You see that? He didn't waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith. In other words, saving faith does not ignore, it does not even try to escape the natural facts and the natural difficulties that seem to stand in the way of salvation. It looks them straight on. You're right, I am the most wicked of sinners that could ever have walked the face of the earth. You're right. All of that is true. I am as guilty as anybody could ever have been. And yet I look to the promise of God and I follow what God says instead. That I am justified, that His righteousness is upon me, that He no longer counts me guilty, that my sin was imputed to His Son, and I am free from the guilt. I am free from the penalty of that sin. You see, the problem with unbelief is that it only looks at the natural obstacles. The problem with unbelief is it looks at it and goes, there's no way, I'm too sinful. There's no way, that promise is too huge. There's no way God would do that. God, you said you'd supply my needs. No way. Do you see how big the pile is? Justifying faith, however, saving faith, looks those things straight in the face and rises above them. Believes anyway. It grows strong. And notice what happens when we believe God. Notice, notice what, what, what happens before God. He grew strong in the faith, verse 20, giving glory to God. Do you realize that your belief in what God said implicitly without asking for proofs based upon His Word alone brings Him absolute glory? He is glorified through us when we believe what he said. And then number five. Number five. Justifying faith is always assured faith. Justifying faith, saving faith is always assured faith. Notice verse 21. And being fully assured that what he had promised he was able also to perform. Abraham's faith, the faith that God had granted to Abraham, enabled Abraham to be fully assured in the promise that God had given. Some of your translations might say he was fully persuaded. I like that. He was fully persuaded. We have to realize that true faith always has a quality of assurance to it. Always. In other words, inherent to saving faith is a confidence in it. It is the 
conviction of things not seen, Hebrews 11 says. Saving faith is, like it says here, a persuaded faith. It is a fully assured faith. I think, I think in the evangelical church and evangelicalism across the globe today, too many believe that faith is doing all I can do to be hopeful in a hopeless situation. As long as I just have enough belief, as long as I believe in that, it's a hopeless situation, but I'm hopeful things might come to pass. No, saving faith is fully assured. This is why... It is so different than just simply saying, I believe. This is why words, when it comes to salvation, are somewhat meaningless in some ways. Simply to say, I believe. Many people have said that. They have said in an intellectual way, I believe. But they have no assurance. They say they believe, and yet they go around going, "Mm, but I hope. There's an element in the back of their minds that maybe this isn't so. Why? Because intellectual belief does not justify. Just rising yourself to the factual idea of Jesus Christ, that he is who he said he is and all that stuff, doesn't necessarily justify you and provide no assurance. Justifying faith is fully assured. Any person who truly believes will certainly say they believe. But the difference between someone who simply says it and somebody who actually is saved will be a confidence in that very fact. I know I'm alive. I know I'm saved. Why? Because justifying faith? No. Justifying faith actually knows. True faith is fully persuaded, fully assured. What are you fully assured about? About what? About the one who made the promise, right? He's fully assured that what he had promised, what God said he was able to do. You see, that's where our assurance lies. We have a hope in the promise that if you believe upon my son, you will be saved. There's a grand hope that goes against all doubt of the ridiculousness of human nature that says it can't be done. And that hope drives us, that faith drives us, it strengthens us, and we have believed him. It's assured because of him who made the promise. He can make it happen. Why did Abraham do and live as he did. And I might add, even to the point that Abraham received a different name from God than what God, what his name was when God began this promising. His name was Abram. Abram means exalted father. And God said from now on, after he had told him the promise of many nations, I'm going to make many nations, so shall your descendants be. He names him Abraham. You know what Abraham means? Father of many nations. Abraham was so assured in the promise that he said to everybody around him, don't call me Abram anymore. Don't call me exalted father. Now you call me father of many nations. God said, call me that name. He's the one who promised it. I know he can make it happen. You start calling me by it. 
people say to us, you Christians are just a bunch of whack jobs. Want to call yourselves Christians, followers of Jesus. You call me. You go ahead. You call me. Because the one who promised it can make it happen. Abraham was fully assured of the promise because he was fully assured of the one who made the promise. This is why belief, this is why our faith glorifies God. Because it says, God, we believe who you are and what you said and that you can do whatever you say. Saving faith always produces assurance because saving faith is entrusting in the promise made, which is entrusting itself to the one who made it. That's why it's assured. No reason to fear. Death, where is your victory? If we are loved in Christ Jesus, who could separate us from the love of God? Paul will say in Romans chapter 8. Nothing can separate us from that love. If God has brought us there, if God's the one who's making it happen, then guess what? You can do nothing to get out of it. So if there's no assurance, then in what are you believing? If there's no assurance, maybe it's because you have your hope resting in your efforts, your own work your own duty, your own moralistic activities, your own religious ritual. What you need to do is get to know God who made the promise. That's what you need to do. Stop looking at all that stuff and get to know God who made the promise. And when you know the God who made the promise and you see Him for who He is, then you'll know that what He promised He's able to perform. Justifying faith holds on to the faithfulness of God. That's what it holds to. As long as we have that, we'll never go wrong. Why? Because God's eternally faithful. God cannot lie. God, if He promised, He'll also do it. That's why Paul can say in verse 22, Therefore, also it was reckoned to him as righteousness. It wasn't something he earned. He believed God. God said, Believe upon my son and you will be saved. That's what God has said. That's what God has promised. Believe upon him and you will be accounted, it will be accounted to you as righteousness. The only righteousness you need is God's righteousness. That is always what justifying faith does. Well, let's pray together. Father, thank you for our time this morning. Thank you for the rich gems that are here in this text for us. Lord, I pray for each one of us here this morning those of us who are already your children by faith in Jesus Christ, Lord, we face doubts every day. Our sinful flesh conjures up things. Satan would love for us to follow after the foolishness of those things, Lord. Help us to walk by faith. Strengthen us in that. 
trusting in your promise, regardless of what obstacles may lie ahead, may lie right before us, may we know that you promised, and because you promised, you can do it. We're not naming it and claiming it by any stretch, Lord. We, we know that your orchestration of whatever comes about is by your great grace. Help us stand in that grace, entrusting ourselves as Christ did to the one who judges righteously. For those who don't know Jesus Christ here this morning who are sitting here, they've heard this and they, they know they're sinners. They know before you they're guilty. Father, grant them faith to trust you, to believe, to believe your promise. Let them implicitly believe your word. Let them trust it based upon your word only. Father, don't let the obstacles of asking for proof stand in the way. Show them the beauty of Jesus Christ in their eyes, the the ugliness of their sin, that they might confess before you with their mouth and believe in their heart that Jesus is Lord to the glory of you so that they might know true salvation and begin today to live according to what you have said in honor of your name. Lord, may these things be penetrating our own hearts as Christians. May this be the words on our mouth that we share with others, that your name would be uplifted, that your great grace would be shown to others, that Christ would be received, that no one would walk out of this place without knowing you as their Savior. Thank you for these things, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.